Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 179 for January 15th, 2009. Cracking Security Certificates. Security Now is brought to you by Audible.com. For your free audiobook and a whole lot more, visit audiblepodcasts.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now, the show where we cover all things secure. <laughs> like your security blanket, your binky. No, no, no. Internet security, online security, privacy. And here he is, the man who knows it all, Mr. Steve Gibson. And if he doesn't know it, he'll find out. I don't think I know what a binky is. So right off the bat, I don't think I'm <laughs> quite up to speed um, on this. You, as you, you, you don't have kids. If you had kids, you know a binky is one of those little pacifiers that uh, kids oh. suck to make them feel yeah, well, more you're secure. Right. But you're and like I hope, you're, in, I hope your kids, which are now teenagers, no longer, no longer are no. binky enabled. No, no binkies anymore. <laughs> so it's good to talk to you. You know, since we talked last, I've been exhausted because I did MacWorld Expo and then, of course, uh, CES. And it's this is traditionally the the week of the year that most of the tech industry collapses in a puddle. Well, you did CES by remote control. The way, the way most people want to do it yeah. is you basically interviewed people who had actually been there on the floor. It was so much easier. Yeah. And it was neat that you had LeVar Burton on. That's, you know, Jordy LaForge from Star Trek Next Generation. Oh, man. You know, I, I was a little reluctant because I don't want to put celebrities on just because they're celebrities. But LeVar is a complete geek. He knew, you know, he was completely up to date on all this yep. stuff. Um, yep. I told him, LeVar, you can come on as many times, anytime you want. He says yes. And we have some interesting ideas of things we might want to do with LeVar. So, uh, yeah, he's great. Wasn't he fun? He was just he was really a neat guy. Really a good show. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. So what are uh, what are we covering today on the program? Today, uh, the sh- the title of the show is Cracking Security Certificates. Um, I, as I promised, I want to I want to explain really for the first time ever. We've we've talked about security certificates in passing many times, but I've never gone through the process sort of step by step of of what someone does to get one, how they're created, how they're signed. What what it really is that a, a security certificate does for us. Um, so I want to really lay a foundation of understanding of how they work. And then we're going to talk about the some detailed operations of the MD5 hash, which is, is damaged to this point beyond recovery, and how these incredibly clever security researchers used this, this broken MD5 hash to create their own fraudulent certificate. So this will be high up on the propeller head scale, um, but I think very accessible and and really interesting for our listeners. Security certificates are really a fundamental technology on the Internet. I mean, there is no... Yeah, I mean, I mean, more so all the time. They they give us both the the ability to encrypt our traffic, but more importantly, our browser is, is making sure... That the certificate it is given by a website when it when it connects to it over a a 
you know, over a channel that it wants to be secure, there's an authentication process that happens invisibly underneath the, you know, sort of like behind the scenes so that, that, that it's easy to take for granted, but that's always happening. And sometimes users may see their browser note a problem. For example, some, I, it's so surprising. Some sites forget about the expiration of their certificates and you'll, you'll connect to a site and you'll get a pop-up notifying you that this security certificate of whatever site you're trying to go to has expired. And you can typically look at the certificate and, you know, you may notice that it like expired yesterday. And so you can imagine that they're getting lots of people complaining that, hey, you know, you did you realize your your server certificate has expired? And in fact, they're probably already scrambling, trying to get a new certificate reissued while this notice is popping up and like, you know, no one's trusting their site. So there's this mechanism going on in the background, which we all depend upon to an increasing degree, because, of course, we depend upon the Internet and the Internet's security to a, an increasing degree. Yeah, yeah. Microsoft, if, if I remember when Microsoft um, wanted to use certificates for security for ActiveX, that it was a little bit controversial. Um, well, yeah, because you need to pay somebody in order to get one. You know, the idea is that, and we're going to discuss this in detail, there is an implied trust at some level right. within the certificate structure that is you know for example verisign is 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 generally the company i get mine from although i used godaddy oh, uh this summer when i was messing around with a wildcard certificate because they were so much less expensive but the point is none of them are free because in return for in in, in return for getting the certificate you have to go through some procedure to prove you are who you say you are they are supposed to in turn verify that information make sure that this is coming from you know gibson research corporation i mean they check our our our, our dunham bradstreet number they place phone calls to phone numbers that are known to be associated with gibson research that come from sources other than us saying, oh, here, call this number, you know, so they independently verify as much information as they can, um, really as, as a function of how secure you want this to be. So they want to get paid in return for doing all that. And, you know, and that's sort of the, the ecosystem that we have for certificates. Now, people have been upset by that because, you know, they've said, hey, wait a minute, why do I have to get a, you know, my ActiveX control signed? That means I have to pay someone in order to, to to be able to sign my ActiveX controls, and in fact, for example, I, uh, Microsoft calls us authentic code, and I now have an authentic code certificate. I need to I need to purchase it every I think it's every two or three years. I just checked recently because I'll be doing some work with signed XEs in the future. But for example, the most recent um, little piece of freeware I did, Securable, is a signed executable. And so it, 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 it prevents um, some of the pop-ups that you get, for example, under Vista, when you try to run something that you downloaded from, from the internet, it's able to, instead, instead of saying, we don't know who this software is from, you know, good luck. Actually, you know, it says, do you know, do you want to run this anyway? Instead, it'll pop up and say, Hey, this is from Gibson research corporation. You know, do you want to run this? But the, so, so the, the environment, Windows, the operating system, the Mac, whatever, is able to assert who this software is from because the executable itself 
contains a certificate that 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 binds um, that our identity information to the executable. You know, I um, I also think that maybe some people don't really trust this chain of trust notion so well, much. Well, exactly. I mean, remember, I mean, I was the one who first, when I looked several years ago at the number of of root authorities in my browser, you know, I, I hadn't looked for years, and it was, there used to be a handful. And, and in the meantime, there had been this explosion of root authorities, and my immediate concern was, whoa. <laughs> who, are you know, these who is this Hong Kong post office? <laughs> yeah, the, the more you have, essentially what that means is that, that any certificates signed by any of these people will implicitly be trusted by our browser. Right. So no warning, no pop-up, no notification, nothing. And that the was browser the just goes yeah. right on ahead right. without that, you know, assuming that everything is legitimate. And and so, you know, the in the case of this cracked certificate that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, you know, it was a a valid, solid certificate authority that was issuing the certificates. There were a number of things that they were doing that were insecure, even even aside from the fact that they were signing their certificate with MD5, which is what we'll talk about. But but inherently, you know, just just the law, the law of numbers, the more people you're trusting, the greater chance there is for one of them to be mistrustful. Right. Right. Okay. Well, we're going to talk about that, how it works and what's been going on with these cracking uh, uh, techniques. Yep. Before we do that, any news in the uh, world of security? A rattle? Oh, from last week? we've always got some news because <laughs> we've always got Microsoft and Windows in the something. picture. Always something happening. So we are um, past our second Tuesday. That was a few days ago, and there was a January release, a small one, actually, in terms of number of problems. There's only one problem that Microsoft and um, released a patch for. However, it's potentially significant. Um, it is in the Windows file sharing protocol, the so-called SMB, the server message blocks. And it, unfortunately, is a remote code execution flaw. It affects all currently supported versions of Windows at the critical level, that is a, a critical remote code execution, except Vista and Server 2008. Wow. Those guys are only affected to a moderate level because there's a, a somewhat lesser um, exploit against them, not not something that Microsoft wants to grade as critical. But for any people using um, any versions of XP, both 32 and 64-bit, um, and also Windows 2000, but, but before that, th this is a problem. Um, the exploit comes in over ports 139 and 445, which are the standard you know, Windows file sharing and many other services ports. The good news is, now, anybody with a router is blocking that by default. Anybody with a personal firewall is blocking that almost certainly. Um, and even many ISPs are blocking those for us. Now, that doesn't, that doesn't prevent, for example, behind an ISP, ISP's own customers might be able to infect each other. And similarly, computers within an organization are all behind the corporate firewall. If they, if there was a, a policy of sharing those ports, you know, within an intranet within a corporation, then you've got the, the possibility that something could infect one machine and it could spread using this remote code execution exploit. And in fact, we are seeing something like that. There are 
there was a report that companies that had that is corporate entities that had not applied that out of cycle October patch from from late last year that they were getting infected by worms mm. that were that were using that exploit. So so you know we we've seen this problem where companies are less willing to upgrade that is their IT staffs really want to vet these changes before they turn them loose on the whole infrastructure that introduces an an implementation delay in patching these problems and some companies are being bit by the fact that they're that they're not doing it immediately. So our you know the the word to end users our listeners typically is you know, get these things fixed as quickly as possible. It's annoying for me, at least, to have to reboot my system in order to get this these patches operating down in the code. But it's something you don't want to hold off doing for too long. Yeah. So Microsoft had that happen, and of course, we all we all we also got a new version of the MSRT, the Microsoft uh, or the the uh, the the um, software removal, the, the the malicious software removal tool. Um, and it's funny, I was looking at that, seeing if there's anything noteworthy about it. And we were talking last week, one of the, our Q&A questions was some guy asking, you know, gee, should I be running MSRT all the time? And we explained that it was something that was run once a month, essentially, when you get a new one and you reboot in order to get this thing in- installed. It's during the reboot that it runs and not subsequently. There are ways you can induce versions of it that you can get from Microsoft to run all the time if, if that's what you want. But I was in the context of that, I was noticing that one of their questions was, you know, is this something I can use instead of AV? And my and because we were talking about how Microsoft does not want to step on the toes of the antivirus vendors. And Microsoft explicitly states this is this is not a replacement. The MSRT, the malicious software removal tool, is not a replacement for AV. It is explicitly a post-infection removal tool. Oh, so it doesn't block anything ahead of time. Exactly. So, ah. my, so Microsoft is looking for this, you know, l- looking for evidence of infection in the system, not even latent code or files that haven't yet infected. So they're, actu- they're actively looking for infection and it's a post-infection removal of course you don't want to get infected you you want to prevent that so the a so the way to think of this in sort of in tandem with av is the av is your frontline guard preventing things as they come in you know scanning your email and 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 websites and so forth on the way in preventing infection but Microsoft has said, look, we, you know, if people aren't doing that, if something gets in under their radar or there isn't a, a signature available yet for something, but, but you know, Microsoft has it, we want to be able to disinfect systems. And you know, they're not saying they do a perfect job. They're just trying to do the best job they can. Yeah. And there I think a, they don't want to step on the toes of commercial vendors, <laughs> I'm, right? I'm sure that's You true. don't want to kill that the, ecosystem. It's too important. Yeah, I mean, and, and we've seen Microsoft sort of slowly creep forward. You know, they now have a personal firewall that has certainly damaged the sale of personal firewalls to some degree to, you know, third party tools. It's like, well, I've already but got a personal firewall built in. They of had course. to do that. Yes. And some would argue that, uh, well, nobody better than the operating system vendor to put antivirus in there. But no other operating system does that. I, I think that the, you kind of like the idea as in fact, remember, Apple put out that note saying it's it's healthy. When you use different antiviruses, if there's only choose your own, yeah, 
if there's only one, then 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 it's easier. It's an easier target for the the bad guys. That's exactly right. Yeah. So maybe Microsoft. It's might not. It's not purely economic or or worried about getting sued. It's it really is better for the platform. There was a an interesting note also in in the security news um, this week. Uh, a company called CheckFree, which is an electronic bill paying service that's used by many banks, sort of as their back end, you know, electronic bill paying service. Um, their network solutions account was hacked. And this is oh, not boy. the first time we've recently heard of network solutions accounts being hacked. And their, D, their, their assigned DNS servers were changed to point to somewhere in the Ukraine. So what happened was, unfortunately, this poor company, well, poor, poor I mean, maybe it's their fault. Who knows how they were hacked? But they're having to now notify nearly six million users. Oh boy! That because they don't know who was affected, anybody could have been affected. And essentially, what happened was this 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 fraudulent site in the Ukraine attempted to install password stealing malware into the machines of anyone who visited, believing that they were a check free. So this was a DNS attack. It was not a spoofing attack, though. It was actually, you know, the 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 source of the DNS was changed. So the 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 takeaway message is: I just wanted to raise this issue to our listeners and say, you know, you really do need to make sure that your login credentials for you know anyone who's maintaining web servers and websites and and web domains that your login credentials for your registrar are really strong, that you've got a really good password. You know, it's a perfect instance or a place to have a really strong password because it's not something that you need to do every day. Typically, you log in, you know, maybe no long, more often than every few years to update your domain name registration. But it's the kind of thing that without adequate safeguards at the at the registrar's end, somebody could just sit there and patiently try to crack into a high-value domain like CheckFree's domain, and ultimately they did. They got in, and they were able to, to redirect wow. their, their DNS. So, you know, that's sort of like a, a legitimate change to DNS because, you know, the registrar's account was hacked. You know, it's uh, this has been happening a lot. In fact, uh, ClickChat. One of the uses of ClickJacking was to get people's Gmail account, and then once you had the Gmail account, request a new password from the domain registrar. So even if you, if you had a strong password, you got you have to be really careful all around. Yeah, you know, um, it, it, it's uh, it's it. Boy, that's a terrible thing when you lose your your website, and it's a disaster worldwide if it's somebody like like Verisign or you know. Yeah. Yeah. And in one other little bit of news that I thought was interesting, um, there were there were articles both in the Boston Globe and the Washington Post. Actually, Brian Krebs picked up the story in the Washington Post from the Boston Globe that people were noticing 25 cent charges appearing on a large number of credit card statements. And um, and so there were two theories. One was and I think the, the, probably the more naive theory uh, and that Brian also didn't subscribe to was that somebody was trying to make money by put by hiding lots of little small charges on credit cards. Well, you know, in order to do that, you've got to have all you know the ability to charge to the card. And so Krebs, who's more technical, thought, you know, I, I doubt that. What this sounds to me like is somebody offering a service f- for the bad guys 
to verify that that stolen credit card information is authentic. And of course, you, what you first see is a 25 cent charge. And then what happens some length of time later is, you know, serious money starts getting charged. So I just wanted to to also put that on our listeners radar that they, you know, just want to scan their um, their credit card statements for any suspicious small charges that uh, they might otherwise not have made or, or you know, to just make sure there's not that going on because that would be an could be an early indication of trouble to come. Huh. So there's a way of them verifying, you know, PayPal does that <coughs> and others, other systems do that. They do two, for instance, the way they figure out if it's really your account, they'll do two small deposits. They use it as a, a as an authentication loop, essentially. Right. And then you they, tell them how much it was. Yep. So, But this is different. This is a debit, not a deposit. Yes. This, this is somebody charging cards a very small amount of money. Um, and the, the number I saw uh, in the article was 25 cents. Yeah, it'd be a way of seeing if you had access, if you were able to, you know, if you got the quarter. If they could get a quarter. Exactly. Or in. Yeah, it's amazing. I have to look at my statement. <laughs> um, we've got some interesting errata, too. Um, there is a, a contributor to, uh, to the GRC news groups who goes by the handle Bill underscore MI. And he I finally ran across a posting of his in in our Security Now news group at GRC, which he said he had posted several times, but I just hadn't seen it before. And he commented that PayPal only shows the plugin menu option after you have downloaded the plugin, <laughs> which I was like, Oh my God. You know, and how PayPal, would you get that plugin? If PayPal <laughs> bites us again. So uh, we, we talked about this also last week, you know, somebody was saying, I think he was in Australia saying, Hey, I can't find anywhere to get to, you know, to generate these, these one-time use credit cards. And so, you know, I said, oh, yeah, it's right there on the menu. The, the first item is plug-in. And even though it's strangely named, you wouldn't think that that's where it is. You click on plug-in, then you go in, and you don't need to use the plug-in. You can still have the website generate a secure card for you. Well, it turns out you may not have the plug-in option on your menu. PayPal knows whether you have ever downloaded it, even if you're not using it, and you don't have to ever use it. You yeah, just have to download it, and it, then your account is tagged <laughs> as having downloaded the plugin. Then the plugin op, uh, item appears on the menu, and you don't have to ever use the plugin. You, but that allows you to get to the ability to generate secure cards. That's just silly. It's just ridiculous. I mean, because I can't use it. The plugins who? for Windows, so I I can't use it on the Mac. So, but you know what's funny? I I must have downloaded it. I think I did at some point. And there is a plugin for Firefox also. Ah, uh, okay. Because I, I do have the I'm option. Sure, I'm sure you and I both did. Sure. And I I didn't like it because it kept popping yeah, I don't up. Want it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I stopped using it. But I but since since PayPal knows that I once downloaded <laughs> it, now I've got the option anytime I want to generate secure cards using their web interface and not with the plugin. That's just goofy so, logic. I'm sorry. So there for for anybody who who after last week went looking for the plugin menu item and still can't find it, try downloading the plugin. You don't have to use it, just download it and then the menu item apparently appears. <laughs> um another friend of mine sent me something that I thought was pretty funny. Just it was just uh, uh some some humor uh, that's clearly security related. Uh Timothy McSweeney has a, a, a website, mcsweeneys.net, and he 
posted some secure website authentication questions that had been put together by someone named Joel Guns. And so the, these were, you know, typical question or non-typical questions that I guess this person was, was recommending as something that would be hard to guess. So we have, what is your older sister's favorite Monopoly game piece? There you go. There you yeah. go. That's good. Who did your paternal grandfather vote for in the 1956 presidential election? I don't know that one. <laughs> um, why did you choose a liberal arts degree when your entire family <laughs> urged you to go into finance? I ask myself that every day. <laughs> in, now it's in comedy. What, <laughs> in, in what year did you begin working on your novel? <laughs> How many weeks away was graduation when you dropped out of college? Oh, my, well, that one I know. That what might, was your that might be in my uh, might, might be in my Wikipedia article. Uh, what was your score on the civil service employment exam? <laughs> Where were you sitting when your girlfriend told you she was pregnant? Uh, where did you never end up going for your honeymoon? <laughs> in what year did you begin working for the post office? Oh, this is so good. What is the name of the hedge fund manager your ex-wife married? <laughs> <laughs> So this is obviously comedy, but it raises yeah. a serious point, which is... How many hours did it take you to drink that bottle of Jack Daniels yesterday? <laughs> and what what time was it when, in a drunken rage, you threw your novel into the fireplace? There you go. <laughs> and how many pages long was it? And, and then the last one is, if you could do it all over again, what would you do differently? Oh, I love that. Well, that's a good security question. So these are questions that you would know... But no one else. Yeah, and they're—I mean—and they're—they're just meant to be funny, also. <laughs> but 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 it's a legitimate point. If you're allowed to to, to generate your own questions, some places do, some places don't. I right. wish they would, because that's a that's a much better way of doing it. Much better. Yeah. yeah. And then lastly, um, we've we've talked, of course, many times about one of our favorite security <laughs> authentication uh, gizmos, the YubiKey, where you plug it into a USB um, port on your computer. And it cryptographically generates keystrokes. Well, our good friends at Think Geek have come up with something that takes advantage of the USB port in a different way. It's called the Phantom Keystroker Version 2. <laughs> it's a little, little dongly-like thing with a USB connector on it. Um, there's three little um, potentiometers, three, you know, variable adjustments on this, which determine the delay between things it does met that are meant to annoy you. It will generate random mouse movements <laughs> on your screen. It will toggle your caps lock or it will type out odd garbage text and phrases. Ah. So the idea, of course, would be that you 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 set this appropriately and plug it into the the computer, you know, like you know, a, an unused USB port in the back of someone's machine, and their mouse just sort of twitches or you know moves around from time to time, or their caps lock toggles, and so they're typing along, and suddenly everything's in caps, and they go like, oh, how'd that happen? And they say, so toggle it back off again, and you know, they're typing along, and after some length of time that you can control it. Toggles caps lock on again. So after a while, you begin to think that your computer 
were, you know, possessed or unfortunately you might think it was infected and, you know, go off in a wild goose chase when this, in fact, is just something that's uh, using USB to simulate the keyboard and mouse. That is pretty funny. Well, it's, a, pretty, it's a practical joke. Yeah, just a practical joke. <laughs> and in fact, since I was first there, I, I went to their site just to verify that it was still there because I'd made a note of this several weeks ago. And we'd had so much content that I had kept bumping this little note about this down. Um, a new warning has appeared on their site. In red, it says, warning, the Phantom Keystroker never hits the return key and it never clicks the mouse button. You know, meaning that, you know, it's not going to actually do any damage. It's not going to select anything or do something. It's just going to, you know, annoy you. He says, and, and then it says, however, you should not use it on anyone's system who is doing critical work where disruption could cause serious consequences. The Phantom Keystroker is a joke. Like any joke, you need to use prudence and judgment when executing it. You have been warned. I like the, uh, the there's there's switches on it for Time delay, caps lock, keyboard, and mouse. So you can you could switch to, you could change his behavior around. Exactly, and then they suggest that you not set them you know to be too quick because it's sort of going to give itself up if if it happens. You would like to have happen you know infrequently enough that someone's <laughs> like, huh, what you know? Did I bump the mouse or is it oh, like that's it, is it drifting on my desktop? Oh, that's so mean. It's only twelve ninety nine. Yeah, they have. I don't know if you've seen it. They have another thing called the Annoyatron. Oh, I've got two of them. <laughs> no. Oh yeah, <laughs> I'm a, a sucker for I'm, I'm a sucker for Think Geek stuff. So the Annoyatron just makes this little beep, right? It's a little a little twitch, yeah. <laughs> Every once in a while, and you and it, you know we all have things that do that when they run out of juice or whatever, right? And you just hide it, and it drives people crazy. And in fact, it's got a magnet on it, so to make it easier <laughs> to, for like sticking it on the back of something. And so it's like, what you, you're looking around? What what's, what's making that sound? And and it's a high pitched little chirp. <laughs> And it never lasts very long. So, you know, it really, it just annoys you because it's like, okay, wait a minute. What's doing that? And so you look around and, but you, it's not on enough to allow you to even zero in on it. And right. of course, a high frequency sound is, is hard for us acoustically right. to, to locate anyway. Can't hear it anyway. Yeah. That is mean. And uh, I have a, a, a nice sort of, in the spirit of the holidays, which aren't very far behind us, Spinrite story I wanted to to share before it became... Uh, dated too far. Uh, Gary Wheel, um, W-E-I-L, I think that's how you pronounce his name. Gary Wheel uh, gave a, uh, sent us a little story about Spinrite saving Hanukkah. Aww. He said, Steve and Leo, I'm a longtime listener to Security Now and other Twit podcasts. I bought Spinrite several years ago and use it at work and home. And actually, his email address is intel.com, so... He's uh, that's where he's using it. Uh, He says, my daughter requested a couple of PS3 games for Hanukkah, and I dutifully bought them for her. It was the fourth night of Hanukkah, and it was time to give her the new PS3 game Mirror's Edge. Mm. A little while after lighting the menorah and giving her the game, she told me that the PS3 was broke. She had enlisted her 19-year-old brother's help, but the restore option on the PS3 would not take. So I pulled the disk drive out and put it in my notebook and booted, and booted to Spinrite. I used level two and it quickly found a single unrecoverable sector. After Spinrite finished, and I replaced the disk in the PS3 and selected the restore option. Within a minute, the PS3 was working perfectly and my daughter was able to start playing her new game. 
I received a great big hug and thanked GRC silently. Thanks for a great utility and wow. keep up the podcast. I didn't know it would run on a PS3. You're just... that, I, the reason I wanted to share this with listeners is it will fix anything. If it's magnetic and spinning, Spinrite can fix it. That's pretty amazing. Wow. And uh, and the other thing I noted that he said it found an a single unrecoverable sector. One of the other things that Spinrite does that is truly responsible for I think a lot of its capability in recovering things is as far as I know it has always been unique in its ability to recover all but the unreadable little bit of a sector that is if like for example if a little more than a couple bytes it, it depends on the total number of bits that are that are that are damaged from from the 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 distance between the first wrong bit and the last wrong bit is the so-called burst and if that's longer than a certain length and like 11 is 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 typical well okay a byte is 8 bits so that's you know less than it fits within 2 bytes or maybe it could straddle 3 but that means that if only 2 or 3 bytes are bad nothing else in the world will give you any of the sector that is any of the other 510 bytes and Spinrite will. It's able to say, okay, no matter what we've tried, and believe me, we've tried, we cannot get this sector perfect, but we can give you most of it. We can give you 510 out of the 512 bytes. Well, very often, for example, if that's in the directory or if it's a boot sector or something, you've gone from, from getting nothing to getting everything you need in order to get the system to boot. And so that's one of the reasons Spinrite ends up having such data recovery gain is that it can give you most of a sector, whereas wow. nothing else will give you any of it. Well, that's very interesting. I didn't, yeah, because normally you'd say, well, if I can't get the whole sector, forget it. Right. But it turns out that most of it can be useful. That's all you need. Very Some cool. parts are edible. <laughs> You're in a mood today. <laughs> It's the comedic stylings of uh, Steve Gibson, I swear. <laughs> hey, let's take a little break before we get to our the meat of the matter, which, of course, is cracking security certificates and how they work and everything. But I want to talk a little bit about Audible.com, those uh, great folks who sponsor the show. They help us uh, keep it on the air with their support. And, you know, we, we're glad to have them on because, man, I am a major Audible.com fan. Audible's where you go. It's a website to download and listen to audio books, 51,000 titles at last count. It really is a library of audio books. And I tell you, very good quality. They really make an effort uh, to give you the best quality possible. When I first started with Audible in 2001, you know, a lot of people were on dial-up and they had a kind of a low quality, low bandwidth, just like we do for security now. So it was easy to download, but the quality was a little scratchy. And they slowly, as time went by, upgraded most of their, I think almost all of their uh, titles to the higher quality, the higher quality. Now they're on MP3 and it's very good. I mean, it sounds superb. And I talked to them uh, a few months ago and they said, we're working on a new format that's going to be even higher quality as people get more and more bandwidth. And that's a great thing. The nice thing about Audible is once you bought a book on Audible, your entire library is always online, downloadable anytime. And as they upgrade the quality, you can get higher quality at no additional charge. So they've really done a nice job of making this I think a very friendly, easy to use, and and really wonderful place. So I talk about science fiction a lot uh, on this show because I know people like uh, science fiction. So we we always do an audible pick 
By the way, you can get this book free by going to audiblepodcast.com slash security now. That's the uh, that's the Audible website where you can sign up for a gold account. And when you do that, you get a credit toward a free book. So uh, this my recommendation would be this book, amazing book. Philip K. Dick, I know you know his stuff, Steve. I mean, oh, yeah. He's really, uh, in many ways, considered to be kind of one of the great masters. And then and the neat thing about him is uh, many people haven't read his stuff because it's a little difficult. It's a little older sometimes. But they all know the movies, so many movies, like Minority Report and Blade Runner that were made out of his short stories. Yep. He's just so original, so innovative. Our pick this week is The Selected Stories of Philip K. Dick. Actually, there's two volumes, volume one and volume two. Uh, if you haven't read his stuff, just read it. They have some of his longer novels, too, like The Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldritch, which is a great novel. But I think it's good to start with the short stories because what makes Philip K. Dick unique is his amazing imagination and creativity talking about the future. I mean, he just, there's no one like him. Really a good start, uh, especially if you've not been exposed to him before, but you've seen the movies. The nice thing about this one is an, uh, a different reader for every story. So there's a lot of variety in this. And I think a lot of times when people get into audiobooks for the first time, short stories are a good way to start because you're taking small bites. You don't have to take a big chunk out. Although I love getting engrossed in a novel. Sometimes, now, I, the longer, the better. But you might want to start out with this one. You can get it for free. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash security now. Sign up, get your credit toward a book. The Selected Stories of Philip K. Dick would be a really great place to start. Audible.com. We thank them so much for their support of Security Now. We couldn't do it without you guys. All right, Stephen, it is time to talk about certs. Certificates. Cryptographic certificates. Yes. Okay. Um, what, a, what a cryptographic certificate is, that is... What what it essentially does is it offers a public key. What what a certificate is publishing essentially a certificate publishes a someone's public key. So what you want to know is you want to know that the person whose public key you believe it is is um, is is true. That right, is that right. so so the certificate essentially binds together the an an identity of someone or something with a public key. And for example, a web server certificate, it's binding the domain name to the public key. So for example, you know, www.grc.com, I you know, we've got a, a an SSL certificate and and the certificate contains GRC's public key. So, so what the certificate is asserting is that that these two things go together: the identity information and the public key. Well, that assertion is being made by a third party, as we were talking at the top of this of this episode, a third party that who is who has taken responsibility and has put their reputation behind that assertion. So someone like GoDaddy or VeriSign or Equifax or Global Trust or, or, you know, one of these certificate authorities has, has gone through some sort of process to, to be able to assert, to attest that, that, that this assertion 
being made by the certificate is true. So the way a certificate is created is you, you, you create what's called a certificate signing request. And, and certificates are just files. They're just data files like anything else, you know, a few K in size. The certificate signing request is something that, that an individual who wants to create a certificate generates on their computer. What their, and and th that process involves creating a public key pair. Now we've talked years and years past in detail about public keys. So I'll, I'll just quickly remind our listeners how they work. The idea is that a, that a so-called public key pair produces or, or consists of two different keys. That is, they're different, and so we use the word asymmetric. We've talked about symmetrical encryption, where you use the same key to encrypt and decrypt it, with an asymmetric key pair, which is normally called a public key pair. One key encrypts and the other decrypts, although it doesn't matter which is which. So you could use either key to encipher something, and you just use the other key to decipher it or to decrypt it. So, so somebody who wants to generate a certificate first creates a public key pair. They then fill out a, um, essentially the, the fields in the, in the standard form. Um, there, there's, a, there's a format for all this called an X.509 certificate. X.509 is sort of the worldwide accepted standard of you know, format for, for public key certificates. So you, you fill out this information, then using your private key, you sign that information. Now, we've talked also before about signing. Signing is the process of, of generating a hash value for that information, which, which ends up essentially digesting any amount of information into a small fixed amount, um, you know, typically 128 bits, uh, which is 16 bytes, or maybe 160 bits, which is, is 20 bytes. You know, some, some relatively small digest, as it's called, of, of, the, of the input text. And then, then that little blob is encrypted using, for example, if we want to generate a, a certificate signing request, that would be encrypted using our private key. So we never we never disclose our private key even to the entity that we're wanting to have sign our certificate. We don't need to because what we do is we take that result that that signed certificate request and our public key and send them off to someone to sign like to 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 VeriSign or GoDaddy or someone. What they're doing then is because it doesn't matter which which of the keys, the public or private that you use to encrypt or decrypt, they don't ever get our private key, but they're able to decrypt our signature with the public key that we gave them. That is, the other key is really all that matters. That gets back the MD5 or whatever hash was used to, to sign the form. They then... Essentially, they hash it themselves. They, they rehash what we gave them, which consists of all the information we provided and our public key. 
and they make sure that they get the same resulting hash value as as we did, which we encrypted when we sent it to them. So what does that prove? That proves that that we are we are in possession of the matching key that we sent them. That is the which in this case we're going to call the private key because we're not letting anyone have it. So they know that 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 we sent them this request containing the identity information and a public key and that we're in possession of the private key because that's the only way that we could have encrypted the signature that we sent them. So so then they say that they, they do whatever they need to do depending on what kind of request this is to verify that the identity information really is us. You know, for example, in the case of a website, you have to go through some hoops phone calls, verify, you know, IP addresses or that you're in control of the website, do something to say, you know, to prove to this authority that, that I, you know, I'm somebody who has the authorization to, to request a certificate, for example, for a server at grc.com. So once that's done, then the, the certificate authority creates a new certificate which is our server certificate that's something which um which they sign in order to prove that they've done this work they've verified the identity and the 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 and the public and private key and and so so they're signing this saying that okay you know we've done our due diligence you know these people are who they say they are that certificate is then sent back to the requester. And for example, in the case of, of, of a web server, it's installed on the web server. And now anytime a third party wants to, wants to establish a secure connection, at the beginning of that connection, the, the web server provides that certificate to the web browser saying, you know, this is who we are, and and somebody who you trust has has agreed with that. Somebody who you trust has has signed our certificate. So what happens is the web browser looks in its store of 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 certificate authorities for the the, the matching the, the matching entity that has signed it. Now that the certificate was signed with their public key so so the public key is available in this store of certificate authorities so the so um the uh the web browser that wants to verify that it that this is a, a proper signature is able to duplicate the signing process verify that they get the same result and the only way that's possible is if is if the certificate has not been changed in any fashion. That is, if the if the if the if the hash value, the so-called you know fingerprint on that certificate, has not had a single bit changed. So that's sort of the the process by by which all this operates. Now, in this example, there's only a a a server certificate and the root or the certificate authority. It's possible to have a chain of certificates and essentially it, it, it works in, in the same fashion where 
where, for example, there might be a so-called intermediate certificate authority or an intermediate authority, and you could have, in fact, several of those essentially forming a chain where, where each certificate is signed by somebody, and then that one is signed by somebody, and that one is signed by somebody. Ultimately, you come back to the root, and it's interesting because the root certificate is signed by itself. That is, it's a so-called self-signed certificate. They sign their own certificate, meaning that there's nobody here left to trust. I mean, you, 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 you have to trust them because, you know, you've got no choice. Ultimately, well, there's always somebody, right? There's got to be one uh, final end of that chain. Well, of course, we're trusting our OS vendor, for right. example, Microsoft right. or, or maybe Mozilla, that provided this set of self-signed certificates. So those root certificates are self-signed. They're just signed by themselves to, to sort of form an anchor to this chain of trust. Okay, so, so that's sort of the, the, the process by which, by which um, a, a certificate is created and issued to a server and then presented to the browser for authentication. What happened back in 2004 is some researchers discovered some problems with the MD5 hash, which is one of the the oldest hashes. Um, there was an MD4 before. In fact, there was an MD2, not surprisingly, before that one, uh, which was pretty well destroyed. MD4 had some problems, and Ron Rivest at, at RSA came out with MD5. Well... As often happens, as our cryptographers analyze and, and, and poke at these things, over time, some problems surface. What happened in 2004, so more than four years ago from the time that we're recording this here at the beginning of 2009, what happened in 2004 is some very clever attacks were designed against the way MD5, the message digest five functions. Now, the, what MD5 does, we, we talked, we've talked in detail in the past about various cryptographic algorithms. I'm going to sort of explain in overview how MD5 actually functions because it's important to understand that in order to get sort of a, a visual idea of, of how it's been broken. MD5 outputs a 128-bit result, that is 16 bytes of data, 128 bits. So essentially, from the outside of this, you can, if, if we think of it for a minute as a black box, we pour any amount of, of data into it. It's able to digest texts, you know, plain texts of any size. So we pour any amount of data into it, and when we're done, no matter how much data we put in, we always get 128 bits. And what's special about a, a hash, the, 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 there are key characteristics of that make a hash a good hash as opposed to a useless hash. And, and they are that, that it is supposed to be extremely difficult, computationally infeasible, you know, is like the technical term, which means, you know, you need a, you know, a, a huge amount of computation time to, to deliberately put something in that creates 
a deliberate result. So, so you're not supposed to be able to, to pre-compute um, a, a complex input that ends up giving you a, a specific output, meaning that you, 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 you cannot, for example, if you had one, one um, document which you hashed into a 128-bit result, you're not supposed to be able to produce, for example, a, a document with a few changes which will give you the same result. So it's meant to be sort of a fingerprint, a, a unique identifier. But the fact that so many bits are reduced to just a few, that is, if you had a long document, it's, being, it's always being crunched down in the case of MD5 to 128 bits. Well, that means that there are, there are many, many, many different patterns of input bits that will give you the same 128 output bits. There have to be because you're reducing, you know, a huge number of inputs into a much lesser number of outputs. So there have to be so-called collisions. A collision is two different things that result in the same output hash. But the idea is that none of those different things that might that, that would result in the same output are useful to you. They're they're just, you know, they're 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 cryptographically random. They're they're not going to be something that is that that is a a useful collision. Well, um, the way MD5 functions is it starts out with a a particular fixed set of 128 bits, and this is part of the spec. In the spec, it says you and and, and that's 16 bytes of data, or or you can think of it as four. 32-bit blocks. So it starts out with these four 32-bit things that are that are fixed values, specific hex values, and it it digests the data 512 bits at a time. So it takes and 512 bits is 64 bytes. So it takes 64 bytes in and and runs an algorithm on those that ends up producing a different four 32-bit blocks. And, and so what, what happens is the, as, as the input comes in, it, it takes the input 512 bits at a time and runs it through this algorithm. It, it's four rounds uh, uh, that, that takes the data in 128 bits at a time. So four times 128 is 512 bits that it takes in, in as a whole block. And every time it ends up sort of taking that the, the, that input for 32 bits and ends up producing an output of these four 32-bit blocks. Now, the problem is that's, that because we want to be able to take something of any length, but MD5 only operates in 512-bit chunks, it's necessary to do some padding of the end of what we're feeding it if it doesn't end up being an exactly an exact multiple of 512 and in fact what happens is um, it's padded out to the the last block is padded out to 448 bits and then a 64 bit um, final piece of data is added which is the is the binary representation of the original message size 
So that's that's how MD5 always ends up with a with an even 512 bit block size multiple, which is what it needs. So so that's the process of of hashing something through MD5 is it's it's first padded out so that it's a it's a multiple of 512 bits long, the end of it being the size of the original message before the padding, and then 512 bits at a time are fed into this algorithm, which which runs through four rounds, and it, at every phase it takes in these initial four blocks of 32 bits or 128 bits, and then after that there's a resultant. 128 bits. Well, once you're all done, that final resultant 128 bits is the hash value. Okay, so so what the researchers figured out is that there was a way to to choose any beginning input imagine that you take a di- the so-called you know the, the, this, the, this this plain text and you you're able to specify two different source plain texts your goal is to have them hash to the same value well these guys these these security researchers figured out how you could take two different deliberately created source plain texts and and at some point before the end essentially make some changes and then add some of your own data to the end that would essentially bring you to identical hashes well this is never supposed to be possible that is it, it was absolutely supposed to be that you you could not deliberately create a a a resultant hash value using a secure hashing algorithm these guys figured out essentially how by by appending their own carefully designed data to the bottom of two different texts they could create a common hash and that we knew about um, two years ago in 2007. So, so essentially, the 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 technology for for damaging MD5 more and more has been advancing, which is exactly you know historically this is what we see in in crypto work. So then the researchers said, okay, I mean, and, and this work was, was published in 07, and people said, oh, gee, that's interesting, very theoretical. Very academic, and some guy, in fact, used this as, as his master's thesis in in cryptography. You know, but it's like, okay, you know, we're not worried about that. Well, so these researchers in the middle of last year, last summer of '08, they decided, okay, we got to bring this to everyone's attention. We got to explain to people very clearly how badly MD5 is broken, how much of the security industry is still using MD5, despite the fact that we are now able to take two different inputs. And if we are allowed to extend their length, if we're allowed to add our own stuff on the end, we now have the computational ability 
to make the hashes end up the same. So, you know, how can we shock people? And they they figured out a way to to create a um, a fraudulent certificate, a fraudulent security certificate. It turns out that doing this was extremely difficult. They um, essentially they needed in order to pull this off, they needed to they needed to be able to get a security. Um, um, uh, a security authority, s- somebody who was going to sign and 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 issue a certificate. They needed to get them to issue exactly the certificate they wanted, because they they needed to provide a certificate su- su- signing request with with exactly the data that they needed, where where they were going to have a fraudulent certificate match the resulting certificate that they got back. The problem was that there's some things they could not control. For example, there's a serial number in certificates that are issued, as well as a first valid date and an ending valid date, which is always based on the instant that the certificate is made. Normally it's, you know, it's like it's valid for one year or two years or three years, but it's like, you know, it involves minutes and seconds based on when the actual signing takes place. So they sent, they created a a bot to go out and scour the net, which over the course of of a relatively short time collected a hundred thousand website certificates. They analyzed the website certificates for a number of characteristics. And it turns out that one particular certificate authority, um, rapid SSL, they were using a sequential serial number. That is, it just it incremented literally by one for every time a certificate was issued. And and to verify that, they they asked Rapid SSL for some Rapid SSLs in rapid succession, and they got back certificates with you know with serial numbers either one off or a couple oh. off if somebody else had asked rapid SSL for a certificate in the right. meantime. Right. So they were able to verify that these serial numbers were being issued sequentially. They were also able to, and they did this over time by asking for one certificate every so often, they were able to look at how rapidly the serial number was incrementing and, and guess essentially what serial number would be issued at a certain time in the future. They also verified that from the time they clicked the OK button asking for a certificate, that it took eight seconds. I think it was it was either six or eight um, seconds for the certificate to be issued. So by by deliberately clicking the OK button on yes, please issue us a certificate, they were at a certain time. They were and they had to synchronize their clocks. Of course, they were able to deliberately choose the timestamp on the rapid SSL certificate that would be issued. Wow. So they 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 looked at where at with where the serial number was. They decided it would take them about 3 days to get everything together. That is essentially to to generate to to generate um the the the, the matching data to be appended in order to make the hashes 
match. And so what they did was they they created the certificate that they that they wanted to to have forged and they the certificate that they wanted to be issued. They then they then figured out what needed to be added to the end of those in order to get the 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 MD5 hash to match. The reason that was important is that the the certificate authority was going to sign the resulting certificate that would be issued to them. Well, they would never have the private key used to sign the certificate. But if their if their forged certificate had the same hash as the one that was signed, then the signature would be good for both. Mm. So so three days before they created this pair of certificates, the, the forged one and the one that they that they were going to get signed from from the certificate authority, Rapid SSL. They they cranked this array of two hundred PS3s many times in order to to do the math to figure out what to add to the certificates, and they have figured out how to hide that the the added stuff in the certificate body itself, and then then then. They started asking for certificates to manually advance the serial number counter until it was one shy from where they wanted. And then at exactly the right time, they said, we want a certificate. And so the serial number jumped to the next number that they had anticipated at it issued at the, at the time that they had that they had designed to issue exactly the certificate that they wanted. That's what they had to go through. It turns out the first three times something went wrong. Somebody else asked for a certificate you know, just before they asked for their final one or, or the, the timing of their clocks wasn't quite right so that like even one second off would, would cause the timestamps not to be predictable. But on the fourth try, they got it. They, they were issued a certificate uh-huh. by rapid ssl with exactly the serial number that they had anticipated and required on exactly the timestamp to the second that they required and all the other information that they had provided so they got back from rapid ssl the 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 certificate that they had that they had designed to be given for which they already had a matching fraudulent certificate. That's so clever. That and where both of them had the same MD5 hash. And that meant that they were able to lift the signature off of the certificate, which they didn't even care about. I mean they threw that away. It's the signature they wanted. They were able to lift that the signature off of the one with the matching hash, stick it on the end of their fraudulent one, and it was valid. Wow, that's so clever. That's such a great hack. It's just, I mean, it's just, inc- it's brilliant. <laughs> yeah. It's, and, and now, of but course, of course we, it only works because rapid SSL is really flawed in the, in the way it's assigning these certificates. Well, okay. So several things, many, many other certificate issuers are issuing a random serial number. In right. fact, this is very you know, much like that DNS, 
attack we were talking about. Yeah, it's very much like that. Yes. Yeah. And, and we know, for example, listeners know that that the certificate authority could actually have a counter, which is just incrementing by one. Right. Just like rapid SSL does. But all you have to do is encrypt it. Right. You know, just run it through a simple symmetric encryption. There are, I believe it's 20 bytes available for Maybe it's bits. I can't remember. Anyway, there's there's a big chunk of space available. I think it is bytes for the serial number. So that because that, that that that's 160 bits. So if you did 160 bit encryption, then every single one would be completely different than the next one, and that would have blown this hack out of the water. I mean, so so and there there there's even the ability to put private data in a certificate. Rapid SSL wasn't, but the, you you could have your own fields. With some random gibberish, that would have blown this out of the water. It was just the fact that they were able to they were able to v- very carefully induce the issuance of exactly the certificate they wanted, where they had pre-computed what its hash would be and had their their fraudulent certificate ready, so they were able to essentially lift the signature from wow. from a valid one and stick it on theirs, making it look valid. Very clever. And if anything else had been done, it wouldn't have worked. Right. So, right. so it's the fact that so, but you know, they really drove their point home finally by by saying, okay, sure, this is theoretical, this is academic. We have just created a fraudulent certificate. Oh, and the other cool thing is, one of the, the there's a bit flag in the X.509 certificate spec, which says, is this a CA or not? That is. It, um, is this an authority or is it a sort of like an end user certificate? Well, um, in their fraudulent certificate, they set that bit. So they didn't just create a single fraudulent certificate. They created their own um, signing authority that, had, that was signed by Rapid SSL. So now... They were able to sign anyone, you know, any certificate that they wanted to. Now they could they could create website certificates all day and night, and if and they signed them, and and again, due to the way a, a, a chain of trust works, the the because the root SSL um, CA was was um, trusted, so was the intermediate certificate authority which signed the final website. So they created their own fraudulent but valid for every web browser on the planet certificate authority. Now, is, how repeatable, though, is this? I mean, it sounds like it's, it's really a lot of work. Well, they have, the, in, their, in, in their careful um, dissertation, I mean, they, they wrote a really well-written paper where they, they take us through this. They also offer all the files that they used so people can see for them see them for themselves they have not gone into the details of how they pulled it off they just said you know lots of math lots of ps3s this is what we did and but they've said some number of months in the future they're going to reveal this uh-huh. they they've commented though that you know to their knowledge nobody else has done this but we don't know that nobody right. else has right. done it right you know people who could do it for for malicious reasons certainly aren't going to advertise it's the academics and see this is here's a perfect example of why we cannot criminalize this sort of work 
I mean, you know, this is what the unfortunately the DMCA, the right. the Digital Millennium Millennium Copyright Act has has really created a problem because there are many academicians that are now afraid to do research because technically they're they're breaking the law. Right, right. We need people to 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 poke at these things, and I and it's worth mentioning too that the the more secure, or I should say, currently more secure, SHA one hash is also under attack. It ha- it hasn't been wounded to the degree that MD five has, but you know there's some concern. That it may, you know, it's better than MD5 right now, but it may not last that long. So, I mean, we, we really need to allow cryptographic research to operate in, in a way that is not fettered by, you know, ridiculous law, which is, you know, well-meaning but wrong-headed. Well, I think so. there are some companies that would prefer security by obscurity. They don't want this stuff to be exposed. Right. Which is really a problem because, of course... Yeah. The hackers will find out. They're not going to tell anybody. You know, I thought it was very interesting they use PS3s, too. They're really computational powerhouses. Yeah, well, there's a, the, the, the way that the, there, there's some types of algorithms which, are, which you can run in parallel mm-hmm. and where you, you're, you, you don't need like lots of branching decisions. So you're able to write code that just does mass number crunching. And they were able to map the you know, the, the algorithmic computational work that they needed to have done, they were able to map it into the architecture of the, of, of the PS3 cell processor um, and, and get this bank of PS3s to do a lot of their work. It's really cool. It's That's very cool. You know, the, idea, the idea that they were able to basically create a pair of certificates, one that they anticipated receiving and one that was, that was you know, that was that of a fraudulent certificate authority. They were able to engineer those two so that they would have the same MD5 hash, then induce a real certificate authority to issue them the certificate they needed wow. that would have a matching cer- signature so that they could take the signature off of the valid one, to throw that one away. They, it's only the signature that they wanted. Right. Tack it on to their fraudulent one, making it a valid certificate authority. Now, we don't know how many times they had to do this. This could be quite costly if you had to buy a bunch of certificates. They said they spent um, about $700, oh. just shy of $700. However, Rapid SSL, unfortunately, it's highly automated. So they were able to, there is a reissue certificate. Oh. I, I think they were, able, they were able to reissue a certificate like 22 times, some <laughs> high number of times. So they did spend just shy of $700, but they generated and then then canceled and reissued many, many times so as not to just rack up the, oh, the bill. And that's clever, too. Yeah. But again, if, if anybody were – if there was any oversight over this, that's another thing that is, is – you know, this would raise red flags. Sure. By anybody who's saying, wait a minute, what are these clowns right. doing? They're issuing certificates and canceling them and issuing them, canceling and issuing, canceling. And so it's like, whoa, stop. Yeah. So, you know, so it was many characteristics of, of this one certificate authority. But these guys succeeded in demonstrating that, you know, MD5 can be cracked. And it's worth noting, too, that they that historically the kinds of limitations that they faced may not stand a year or two or three from now well, so we not? need to get away from md5 what, what, what do you mean uh, in terms of the speed of processors the technology 
Well, for example, um, if more were, no, no, if more were learned about MD5, oh, I see, yeah, it may be possible to take existing certificates and lift the signatures from them and move them over. Right now, this attack required a that a you know very precise issuance of it of a pre-computed, pre-designed certificate to be signed. But imagine if you if you were like you know had godlike understanding of MD5 and and you know much more than we have now where you could just take anyone's signature and move it onto your own fraudulent certificate then the world is over oh boy oh boy well i th- i'm glad this is really interesting stuff and it, and, and i just am admire the uh you know, it's graduate students. They get a lot of time on their hands. <laughs> I, I admire their their uh, just their their persistence and their cleverness. I mean, there's a huge amount of of, of clever, smart work being done here. It's really oh, interesting. I, um, absolutely so. Yeah. And you know, this is what we need them for. Yeah, yeah. That's that's why open systems work because people can bang yeah. on them. Yeah. Steve Gibson, you're the greatest. Thank you for making that all crystal clear as usual. You can find more about uh, all of this in, in show notes. Now, we have a new wiki, wiki.twit.tv, and we're putting show notes there for public consumption. Uh, we will migrate them. It's really nice because the community is working on them. We'll migrate them, of, of course, over to our regular show notes on twit.tv. And then Steve has his show notes. There are many places to get more information. Steve's show notes are at grc.com slash security now. He also, that's where you'll find transcriptions. We get, He does full-length transcriptions. You've inspired us, Steve. I think really... Uh, it's really clear that uh, from a point of view of, of Googling things and finding things, you've got to have text. So yes. uh, I think we're going to talk to Elaine and, and do more and more of our shows because the transcriptions just really help. This show in particular, this is the one you really want a transcription of, of course. And uh, 16 kilobit versions for low bandwidth people. It's all there, grc.com. When you're at grc and... and- back page, grc.com slash feedback. I, you know, next next show is going to be a Q&A. Right. So if you've got questions, you've discovered things, you want to make sure we know things, you've got ideas, whatever it is, grc.com slash feedback. We want your questions. Also at GRC, of course, SpinRight, the world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. And uh, many great free programs like Shields Up, Wismo. GRC, the Gibson Research Corporation, grc.com. Steve, have a great week. Let's hope there's no major security backlashes this week, and we can talk next week and answer people's questions. Either way, we'll <laughs> we'll keep it covered, Leo. Thanks That's very much. That's what we're here for. Thank you, Steve. We'll see you Bye. next time on Security Now. Security Now.